4: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 15th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about Kobe Bryant's terrible, magical, profane, and somehow fantastic 2014 season. Plus, we'll look at whether there's anything the NBA can or should do about the West being so much better than the East. Baseball prospectus editor-in-chief Sam Miller will join us to explain which baseball teams are looking smart and which are looking dumb after the winter meetings. Transaction Palooza. Attorney Sharon Vinnick, who represented cheerleaders for the Oakland Raiders and the New York Jets, will tell us why these women deserve better treatment from their teams and the NFL. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will talk about the latest developments inside the commissioner's office and whether Roger Goodell is dumber than even the dumbest baseball teams at the winter meetings. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. Author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and the Friday Sports Correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. Mike uh, Pesca pointed out uh, before he started recording that Stefan has a midfalutin name. Mike, can you explain what that means?
5: Well, you could mistake it for, st- or I wouldn't say you can mistake it for. It's sometimes mistaken for Stefan. Stefan would be the highfalutin version. But it's also sometimes mistaken for
1: Stephen. And that would be the lowfalutin version. So, Stefan, that's a midfalutin name. That's, I like to go for the mid. I don't like yeah. the extremes. I'm a very balanced guy. Sort of the Greek ethos. All things in moderation. Actually, my name really is, I'm going to confess, my name birth certificate is actually the full Greek Stephanos. Stephanos. O-S. I had an O-S to the end of
4: my name. So you can go highfalutin, lowfalutin, and or Greek extra, extra, <Greekfalutin>. extra Greek. <laughs> <laughs> Greek fluton. Uh Mike is the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. We're doing this big podcast special issue on Slate this week. You interviewed Mark Marin um, about the best podcast episode ever. I was hoping that... He said it was our episode last week. It was weird. Yeah, I was hoping <laughs> yeah. that it was just going to be like a 20-minute conversation about the conversation that we had last week about, like, kerning on the back of NFL uniforms. Yeah, yeah. He so was, modest said, of you not to. He said he
5: was fat. He said, as you know, what you know about me is I'm into comedy, The Rolling Stones, Neuroses, and Teddy Bridgewater. He started the conversation <laughs> that way.
4: <laughs> um, so we do have the potential to have the greatest podcast episode ever, due to the fact that we're about to do our annual You're Colin show, which I look forward to. I think the listeners look forward to, and you should call in if you're listening to this on December fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, or eighteenth. You should immediately run to your, probably run to the same device that you're listening to this on, um, because we're recording the call-in show on December 19th, um, and the phone number is 77-HANG-UP-10. We've got some numbers in there, some letters, um, I think no Ws, so that's not going to be too wide on your phone. But we want calls from men and from women on topics that will still be relevant when the show is broadcast later in December, so please call. We want as many calls as possible. Um, it's seven seven, hang up uh, ten. Give us a call this week, and we are also still looking for a spring intern. Candidate should live in Washington D.C. and must be available to come into our office on Mondays. It is paid, and if you are interested, email us at hangup at slate dot com. A quick version of Win- Whimsy Watch. This week, uh, my uh, maybe we'll just do one whimsy watch. My yeah. nominee was Eric Weddle dyeing his beard gray and uh, naming himself Weddle Claws. Because we saw Ryan Fitzpatrick actually trim his beard, the quarterback for the Texans. They went on a winning streak. I like to see... <laughs> and then he some, got
5: trimmed out of the game. He yesterday. did. Yeah.
4: I um, like to see somebody just going more aggressive with the beard. And I feel like a dyeing your beard gray, naming yourself Weddleclaws. That is whimsy. You can't argue I, with that.
5: I'd like, I'd like him to uh, walk with a uh, crooked stick, uh, hunched over, and <laughs> to cackle. Because he's got to really commit.
1: He does. The reindeer on the sidelines were
4: a bit much. Mm-hmm. All right. On Sunday- he was
5: dialing up a Blitzen. <laughs>
4: <laughs> he does control the uh, Charger's defensive signals. Is that a reindeer? It should be. Charger? No, no. I'm not from that tradition. Romo, one of the reindeer. <laughs> uh, on Sunday night in Minneapolis, Kobe Bryant scored 26 points on 7 of 20 shooting to pass Michael Jordan for third place on the NBA's all-time scoring list. He know, has 32,293 points in his 19-year career, now trailing just Carl Malone, who has 36,928, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who has 38,387. The milestone came three days after Kobe was caught on tape, calling his teammates soft like Charmin and yelling at general manager Mitch Kupchak that his teammates ain't doing shit for me. So this is maybe the most Kobe Bryant weekend of Kobe Bryant's long (laughs) and illustrious career. The seven for 20 also just kind of... Iverson-esque. He has the lowest shooting percentage of his career. He's um, below 40. He's near the NBA leaders. And points, and the Lakers are terrible. They've won three in a row, but they're not going anywhere this season. So this, the, the basic point of this Lakers season is essentially for Kobe to just accumulate statistics. Um, and he seems to be embracing that, uh, as Kobe Bryant does. He is kind of in the grizzled veteran stage of his career. Mike, have we learned anything new about Kobe Bryant this season, or is, is he uh, who we thought he was?
5: Well, I think we haven't learned it from his play on the court, but uh, I don't know. Maybe I've just been exposed to more interviews, but I'm hearing about him more as a person. Or who did, he, did it, he did an interesting interview with, I think it was the New York Times and someone, I'll look this up. But like someone who was a titan in the field of some field we wouldn't have thought of, fashion. And he's just such a perfectionist and such a person who... Is never really going to be happy. So, but he also seems to really know himself and to know what his own definition of happiness is, which seems to be shooting a lot (laughs) and yelling at teammates. But, uh, yeah, another interesting thing is that it's, uh, the comparison to Jordan is an obvious one since he just passed Jordan. And I was reading a couple of articles, I think in the Wall Street Journal, an article about how, you know, he's really not that much worse than Jordan and they didn't use the per game statistic. They used the per 36 statistic. And then they, you know, chose different ways to look at it. And in almost every one of their ways, he was worse than Jordan. <laughs> now, like with some stats or maybe he's a better rebounder than Jordan. Do we care about Jordan rebounding? So that same set of stats was covered by 538. I think in the much more accurately, if I was explaining to this, to someone who didn't know either player once and for all, Michael Jordan was way better than Kobe Bryant. But if you want to tell me this guy's the third best scorer in NBA history, I'd believe you.
4: I find Kobe Bryant deeply hilarious for some reason. Sam Anderson wrote a piece like eight years ago for Slate. That's one of the, my favorite pieces that I've ever edited. That's about the pleasure of hating Kobe Bryant. That was the title. And about Kobe's run derivative soul and how everything that he has done in his career is modeled off of trying to be Michael Jordan and the way Sam described it which I thought was incredibly apt is that Kobe's entire career is in quotation marks that like all of his like hand signals like holding the fist out in front of him is copied from Jordan um that you know his game on the court is modeled off of Jordan And I actually wrote a piece about how LeBron James suffers by comparison to Jordan because Jordan has this perfect career arc where he like struggles early in his career and then he just wins all of these championships. And then like that's essentially it if you forget the Wizards stuff. And sports just doesn't work like that, that it's a lot messier, that you don't have these, you know, obvious arcs in the way that Jordan did. He kind of like broke you know how things work, and made it into this more storybook thing than it actually is. And Kobe Bryant has certainly had that messy career. And saying that he's worse than Jordan, it's like saying that any—I mean, it's, it's just so obvious that it's not even worth saying. But do you feel like I, I find it persuasive this idea that Kobe is just entirely inauthentic person who has? just so consciously molded himself after this this other guy.
3: I
1: don't know. I mean, I think there are times when you listen to Kobe talk and you hear him berate his teammates and you think there's a genuine athlete there that gives a shit about what he does on the court and doesn't Certainly true. doesn't suffer lazy players, doesn't suffer incompetence, believes that if you're good enough to play in the NBA, then you're good enough to get better at playing in the NBA. And his career has obviously been messy and not just on the court because of his run-ins with Shaq. His successes and failures in Los Angeles, the comparisons with 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 Jordan, um, but also off the court with the sexual assault allegations in Colorado, and him being sort of an imperfect pitchman in the middle of his career, just a, not a terribly genuine and likable fellow.
4: So I, you know, two interesting things to pair: sexual assault allegations and being a lousy man.
1: sponsor. Uh, yeah, but you know, Jordan's career is really. It's funny. I called up both. Um, of the probasketballreference.com pages for these guys. And it's still jarring to look at Jordan and see that hole did not play minor league baseball and then that did not play retired for three years in a row before those hideous two last seasons in Washington. The thing that's, I think, most incredible about Kobe Bryant is that we forget he was 17 years old when he was drafted. 17. He was playing that summer, turned 18 the summer before his rookie year. That's remarkable. He's been in the league for 19 seasons. Yeah. How many more games than Jordan? 200 more games. 200 more games than Jordan. Four more seasons so far. That is an incredible toll on his body. To be able to last 19 years in the NBA is pretty remarkable in and of itself.
5: You know, a lot of people compare themselves to Jordan, and when they're Harold Minor, it doesn't offend us or it doesn't <laughs> seem notable. Like no one ever. Get, the only guy maybe we care about post Jordan, uh, comparing himself and playing a career in quotes, is Kobe because he got almost there. And the person I was trying to think of is Ariana Huffington. He did this amazing New York Times fashion and style interview with Ariana Huffington, and I think the interviewer didn't really understand some basic facts about basketball, so that was very interesting. And I just I think that he's a person. Who Who knows himself and who under, you know, he says things like, it's not about winning. It's about the journey of winning. And I think that he's a lot different from you and me. And maybe he's a little like what we think uh, our version of Jordan is. But I I think in reality, he's an extremely competitive guy who's going to end his career with the same team. So, You know, Jordan, like when you say we forget the wizard stuff, it's easier to bracket it off, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was this clear delineation. Kobe being a Laker his whole life, maybe it seems a little more sad, tragic, whatever, petering out instead of going out on top. I mean, when we think, how did Jordan end his career? I bet you... In 20 years, people say, oh, clutching that trophy, right, hugging that trophy on the Bulls logo at center court. That's what people will remember. we're not going to remember – some, and that's not true. Well, Kobe did try to
4: force, force several trades. So uh, <laughs> gotcha. I, don't know if, I don't know if it's his choice to uh, end up on the same team. I feel like Kobe – And he might not. If he decides have... to play until he's 39, he might not end up on the Lakers. I feel like Kobe could have been Alex Rodriguez. Like looking back on that Sam Anderson – Piece. He's kind of like grown into being respected as a player and as like a hard worker. There's this kind of maybe a urban legend, maybe true story that circulated on Reddit about Kobe like waking a trainer up at Team USA at like four fifteen in the morning, and then like shooting jumpers for six hours while everyone else was sleeping. So the guy with like the work ethic, but the like Black Mamba stuff, the name that he coined for himself. This is the kind of stuff that we would mock if he did not have the 5 championships and there is something like a ratish mm-hmm. about him except we respect the way he has played
1: on the court and his determination and the competitiveness. He is genuine on the basketball court. It's the disingenuousness off the court that I think we, you know, roll our eyes over.
5: Well, you know, Michael Jordan engaged in, I don't know if he gave himself nicknames, but he invented a brand of Nike. I mean, he didn't invent it. Nike ushered him. And so he was good at that. So how much credit does he get for that? So Kobe picked uh, a nickname. I don't think Black Mamba is that bad a nickname. I don't know. It seems like Jordan, <laughs> Jordan gets this. <to> <laughs> the fact that he picked it himself.
4: My, my nickname is, is Purple Python.
5: I think black Mamba. See, but if but if he didn't pick black mamba, we wouldn't we'd feel uncomfortable saying black mamba. So like you can't call that guy black mamba. Why? He calls it to himself. All right, and then you call him black mamba. I thank him for picking it.
4: Well Kobe is in this category of athlete who's so unbelievably great at what he does and so talented that he kind of overestimates his abilities, so that's why you he's shooting this low percentage. You see him like going one on five, um, and that makes me kind of Appreciate and respect LeBron James. Everybody knows I'm a LeBron uh, You're the fan. You're in the of LeBron, and I'm I'm a Kobe hater. Apparently, it's one but or the other.
5: There's no that Venn diagram does not exist.
4: Maybe in uh, Stephen Smith. That's the only one who likes them both. So the Lakers are terrible. They're one of the few West teams that is. The West is 89 and 45 against the East. It's the biggest disparity ever. In a column on Granlund, Zach Lowe. You know, said that Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant. These are some of the best players in the NBA. Um, They could be left out of the playoffs, while Milwaukee, Indiana, Brooklyn—these really bad teams in the East—could make it in. There are different proposals being floated for just put sixteen teams in the playoffs, no, no matter what the conference is. You know, Mark Cuban is throwing around the self-serving idea to move the Texas teams and New Orleans into the East and throw some of the Eastern crap into the West. You know, this stuff gets talked about kind of like fancifully, um, but it seems like it might be getting actually a little bit more serious because the disparity has persisted for about a decade. Stefan, do you think that it's realistic or that something should be done?
1: I think that, you know, based on what we've seen from Adam Silver, the new commissioner, it seems like at least they would consider a sort of radical change into the way conferences are structured um, or the abolition of conferences entirely, which would make the most sense. I mean, so many... Sports fans, sentient sports fans in the United States understand how, say, English soccer, European soccer works and you know forget promotion and relegation that's not happening in America no one wants to play Sioux falls and this is the He's waving this is his hands. I'm waving my hands because there was a, another column in the New York Times uh, over the weekend in embracing the idea of promotion and relegation for the NBA you know wouldn't it be so much fun to make the Knicks suffer and have to travel to Reno to play their games but there is a solution to this and it is european modeled and it could be something akin to two leagues i mean i think if you added a couple teams in the NBA, you would get to 32, divide them into effectively two conferences, except one is your A conference and one is your B conference.
4: There are ways to, to do this. and have. So the, you're talking about promotion and relegation.
1: Except within the NBA, effectively. I mean, you have an A and a B conference, they still play each other, but, maybe the, the, but it would be an imbalanced schedule. And then let 12 of the top six teams in from Division A and four from Division B, let the four from Division B move up to Division A the next season. Everyone's going to still go to the NBA games. It's not going to be like, oh, shit, Sioux Falls is coming to town. What do I care? The Lakers are still going to come to town if you're in Division A, I mean, because they'd be in Division B, obviously. So there, there are creative solutions out there. The question is whether leagues are, and owners are, frankly, bold enough to embrace the idea of some radical change that might affect who they play each year, the number of times that the best teams or the best players come to town. Though this year, you know. Kobe and Carmelo and plenty of good players would be playing in the shitty group
5: well that's an interesting but terrible idea why sort of like rectal feeding although not immoral no it's way too complicated no, well not... for for a few reasons yeah it's extremely complicated it's, it would Oh, right. It's simple. It's totally unbelievably impractical. If you're going to do something that is a break with the traditional way they've been doing it, I'd much rather have some sort of playoff for the uh, draft pick. I would much rather spend resources addressing the tanking issue. And in fact, the imbalance thing, it goes, it's cyclical. And it's not just cyclical by chance. I really do think teams in one division get good and other teams there's an arms race so that's why you had for years when the Bulls were the team in the east other teams making specific moves and upgrading their roster to defend specific players that you thought you were going to get you know in the second or third round of the playoffs so the Pacers and the Knicks and the Bulls and the Pistons they were always against each other and is exactly what's going on in the west right you fear Durant and you fear Westbrook so you know your team constructs constructs its roster thus. And it's true for every sport. And in football, the conversations being had, and a few years ago, it was, what are we going to do about this horrible NFC West? And the Seahawks get into the playoffs seven and nine, cut to a few years later. It's clearly the class of the, uh, of the sport. So I think it not only is it cyclical, it's probably a good thing for basketball. And furthermore, the NBA's bottom line, it doesn't make, yes, it is. A bit unfair that a bad team in the East certainly won. Right now, I think that like three teams with losing records would make the playoffs in the East and excellent teams won't make it in the West. But that's not going to depress ratings. It's not going to take money out of anybody's pocket. It just makes it a bit more intriguing. Final thought... Kevin Durant might not make the playoffs. He missed a quarter of the season. That's why he might not make the playoffs. And he's going to make the playoffs anyway, because he's that good upon
1: his return. <laughs> Intriguing, but not fair. And there is a movement in sports toward equity, fairness. We've talked about this, toward advanced statistics that tell us that that you know that these are the better players. These are the better teams. We have ways of calculating this now. So it does offend a certain segment of the viewing and watching public to say that Milwaukee's going to make the playoffs with a 38-and-whatever-44 record and some 50-win team in the West isn't.
4: All right, so in conclusion, Stefan is wrong on the A the and B thing. That's not a good idea. He is right that it's unfair, though. And uh, Mike is wrong about the like teams countering specific because, like, weren't the Heat the best team in the league? Why weren't the Eastern teams all and an arms race to make themselves awesome. I don't think that's why one conference is better than the other. So I'm glad to settle those disputes.
5: The Bulls did construct their roster to try to beat the Heat last year.
4: So that's why the East was so great, because...
5: The East was good. The Heat did win or did go to the finals, and the Bulls were good. And by the way, if the playoffs were held today, there'd be uh, the the Phoenix Suns at 12 and 13 would make it from the West.
4: Yeah, and the top seven teams are all like 17 and 12 or better. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> if you're looking for gifts for Christmas or Hanukkah or Stefan's birthday, which isn't in December, but you've got a plan ahead for these Mike's things. Is. Oh, Ooh, if you're planning for, uh, for Mike's birthday. If you're running a little bit late on that, I'd recommend Slate Picks, a new curated collection of products selected by Slate writers and editors. You can check out June Thomas's favorite writing tool, Staffer's favorite board games, including the word game Snatch It. You can also buy a poster. Snatch It is way better than any word game. other word game. You can buy a poster of the United uh, Sports of America, the awesome illustration that accompanied the article in which I assigned individual sports to each of the 50 states. To check out all that stuff and a whole lot more, go to SlatePicks at picks.slate.com and make your holiday shopping a whole lot easier. You're a poster. I am a poster. Poster. I got Posterized. All right. Joining us now is Sam Miller, the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and the co-host, along with Granlin's Ben Lindbergh, of Baseball Prospectus's daily podcast, Effectively Wild. Hello, Sam. Hello. How are you? Good. I'm kind of confused about which teams are smart and which teams are dumb. So I'm hoping you can walk us through that. The consensus seems to be that the Cubs are now smart. They signed John Lester. They also got Jason Hamill and traded for Miguel Montero. Um, but also along with just getting, like, guys who are famous and will probably be good, it seems like the culmination of a plan. There are lots of teams that are just, like, signing guys willy-nilly, but it seems like the Cubs have done things in a very, like, A to B to C process, and this was... Was this the D? or we had the E or the F? Where are we with the Cubs?
0: I think that, uh, let's see, A, B, C... I think this is probably C right now. And uh, you're right, it is... A clear plan and a clear process, which is what uh, the Internet loves. The Internet loves a plan. Anytime you can establish a character for your team and then make moves that fit with that character, unless you're Ruben Amaro, people are going to cheer you because process seems like the only thing that we're really capable of judging. The alternative to that is if you uh, surprise us with a super secret process, that's good, too, but you've got to have a process. The Cubs have a process. It's not as though the Cubs... Created like the most inventive process in the world, though. I mean, they're basically doing what the Astros are doing, too. They're just doing it with a little bit less um, of a PR campaign behind it, and so it doesn't seem quite so crass. But they basically took a team that could afford to spend a lot more money uh, and spent uh, way less for a long time getting as bad as they could possibly be, trading off anything that they could possibly trade off, even signing people specifically to then trade them four months later while uh, looking forward to this year in the future when they would be good. And in one sense, that's really smart and really good. And if you're a Cubs fan uh, and your team's got a better chance of winning the World Series over the next five years than than maybe in any five-year period of your life, you're pretty happy. On the other hand, uh, it is basically tanking, and it is basically billionaires taking uh, revenue-sharing money that they probably don't need. So those are the downsides.
5: There, it seems to me that more teams are trying to get good than normally are trying to get good. Like the Dodgers are trying to get good. The Red Sox are trying to get good first with offense. Maybe they'll think about defense. The Detroit's definitely trying to get good. Yankees are always trying to get good. White Mets Sox. might even be trying to get good. Yeah, the Red Sox, I mentioned. White Sox, what the White fuck Sox. are the A's yeah, doing? Talking. What the hell are the A's doing? Are they trying to get cheap but maybe good? But I have no idea what the A's are doing.
0: The A's are sort of heartbreaking to watch because I don't, I, I trust that they're doing what they have to do, sort of. I kind of trust. I, I trust that the front office is doing what they have to do. I don't necessarily trust that the ownership is doing what they have to do. But the best guess is that they looked at their team and saw that they were good but not quite good enough to outlast the Angels and the Mariners next year. And so they're doing something radical, which is breaking up the team that they thought was so-so, gambling that the new guys they get back will be better, building for you know, a little bit longer competitive window instead of putting all their eggs in the in the Brandon Moss basket, the famous Brandon Moss basket. Yeah. Uh, it's the proverbial ricker, it's lacquer, we don't know yeah, about it. Yeah. yeah, the proverbial Brandon Moss basket. So uh, they're doing that. It's If they were an 80-win team, it would be like just business as usual. It would be you know more or less what the A's have always done and what a half dozen to a dozen other teams do when you are at the downslope of your competitive cycle and it looks like next year is going to be a little worse than last year, you you know, break it up and see if you can bring the next good year a little closer. The problem is that the A's last year might have actually been the best team in baseball. They had the best run differential. I think they had the best run differential in baseball. They were way ahead of everybody in run differential for most of the year. They, all the peripheral stats, all the indications were that they were an elite baseball team that Billy Bean had put together, maybe his best team ever. And there's, again, I sort of trust that they're doing what they have to do, but there is something depressing about the sport when you have to break up a playoff team when like you can't even enjoy you know a playoff team for one more year you can't even wait for it to start to it's almost like minority report right where you have to like forecast crimes that haven't even happened and it's just depressing it's sort of sad I wish they didn't have to do it on the one hand that's all my opinion on the other hand though it's not like they've completely punted. They have gotten you know, major league-ready players. That's sort of Billy Beans' MO lately is to get guys who aren't prospects anymore but have four or five years of club control uh, when he can, and it's sort of a compromise between punting Uh, and going for it.
1: Don't you also get a little bit the sense that Billy Bean is kind of just saying, oh, fuck it, after all these years. Like, I'm just going to try something completely different. I'm completely frustrated with ownership. I've been through a couple of iterations of it here in Oakland. We're still, unlike almost every other major league team, trying to find a stadium that can get built so that we can have the revenue to allow us to compete. How does someone not get frustrated and just sort of throw anything against the wall that he possibly can to try to, you know, play differently?
4: Isn't the argument though, that they're now trying to enact a more long-term plan, which would suggest that he's not trying to just win everything well, it, this year. But he's never really, we've never argued that Billy Bean is, you know,
1: signing some one free agent to try to, to win this year. I that's mean, clearly that's what they did at the year. end of this year. Right. That was one approach that he had never done before. And he's, now he's trying something that seems completely mysterious to a I lot of think- people. But there's no unified theory of Billy Bean.
5: Like you can't, If the Butler trade means something, they acquire Butler for $10 million, trading Donaldson means the opposite, mm-hmm. doesn't
0: it? Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up Billy Butler, because it, any, any hypothesis you have for what Billy Bean is doing gets twisted beyond recognition by the Billy Butler signing. It doesn't seem to fit any of this stuff. The problem with all of this, and I think the problem with any of the, the off-season assessment of GMs, which is basically what the off-season is, it's the season for GMs, and we just stare at GMs and then put scoreboards on them. The problem with that with Billy Bean or with any owner is that you don't really know what all of the factors are. You're judging them based on a very limited sliver of what you know they're trying to do. With Billy Bean, we don't know for instance, for one thing, we don't know all the moves that he tried to make and couldn't and all the moves that maybe got close to being made but but weren't. We don't know, more importantly though, what his ownership is telling him and it's quite possible that He's just doing what his ownership tells him to. There's this weird thing that Billy Bean and also his deputies, like Farhan Zaidi, who just went to the Dodgers, has said, which they always deny that they have a five-year plan, which is the weirdest thing to me. This is a team that is known for its foresight, that is a small market team, and small market teams can only operate on these five-year-type windows. And it's the one advantage you have if you're a poor team, that you don't have to win this year. If you're the Yankees, you have to go all-in every year, even at the expense of you know, efficiency and long-term plans. If you're a kind of a bad team, you don't have to do that, and that's, that's the luxury. You can sort of do what the Cubs are doing. You can save up and have you make your best play all at once. And they always, the A's have just consistently denied that they have any kind of a five-year plan, and I think that, that that actually might be true. I think that it could be that their ownership is somewhat unstable, like, in terms of how they view the team, and basically they don't the ownership refuses to have a 70-win team. Unlike a lot of these other teams, the A's don't have the luxury of dropping below 70 wins because ownership thinks no fan will ever come back. It would be the end of the baseball era in Oakland. So you have to be at least pretty good. And so that's why Billy Bean has to kind of keep a much higher floor than other poor teams have to do. And if you think about it that way, then each move kind of makes sense on its own. It, It almost completely guarantees that the A's will not win 95 games this year and also guarantees that they're not going to win fewer than, you know, 76 or something like that. And that puts them in this middle class of baseball that we generally think teams don't want to be in, that that's the only bad way to to run a team is to be an 80-win team and be expensive enough to to hurt your future but not good enough to be exciting. Well,
4: Well, here's a hypothesis. So... I found Dave Cameron's argument last year about the the Royals uh, to be persuasive, and that's that for a team like the Royals or the Pirates that has been bad for so long, the marginal value of a win like in the 85 range is so much higher because the fan base is so starved for success. And then once you get in the playoffs, you have the opportunity to make this kind of run to the World Series that will create an entire new generation of fans of that franchise And so if you're just if if you're like a smart baseball analyst and you're like, the Royals just kind of are mediocre, like why are they, you know, signing James Shields or why are they doing all this stuff that'll maybe get them an eighty-fifth or eighty-sixth one? Well that's the if that's the win they can get you in the playoffs and create this new generation of fans, it's totally worth it. But for the A's, if your kind of baseline is like getting into the playoffs and losing, then if you think that your team is gonna get worse, and at best will be a team that will get in the playoffs and lose, then that doesn't really do that much for you. Does that make sense?
0: It makes sense to if you're the fan who thinks of baseball that way. It doesn't really make sense, though. if you're. It shouldn't make sense if you're Billy Bean, and you know that getting to the playoffs is the goal, and it's 98% of the goal. I mean, there might be a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit to the A's disappointments in the postseason, you know, compared to their regular season success, but it's not... It shouldn't be the driving factor in his roster construction. He's just trying to put the best team possible. And the best team possible is the one that goes to the playoffs every year as as much as he can, right? I mean, that's you want to collect lottery tickets, I would think.
4: Um, can we talk about the Marlins? That team really pisses me off. Okay. They're spending one year, then they're not spending. It's this, like, boom-bust cycle. And we've talked about this in terms of, like, the Sixers or the Astros or other teams that have tanked. Like, what is the responsibility of a team to— It's fan base. Um, And the kind of like up and down, that team has had trouble with attendance, even with a new ballpark. And it's because I think the fans just have no idea what ownership is going to do in any given year. So now they give Giancarlo Stanton this like biggest contract ever, um, although he can opt out after six years, but it's more than $300 million. Is there a reason for fans to believe that this money is, like, real money, that, that that this is going to be, like, a newfound, like, long-term seriousness about the team, or are they just going to blow everything up in two or three years again like they always do? Uh,
0: I don't think there's any reason for fans to count on this being a new era at all. I mean, it's conceivable that the fans will have a good team out of this. Um, the Marlins, uh, the one good thing you can say about the Marlins is that they tore down... Uh, after 2012, they tore down so fast, but they they also built up much faster than we're used to. I mean, it only took them 18 months before they were a buyer again. And you look at some other teams that are treating rebuilds as three or four or five year processes, uh, and the Marlins didn't do that. They basically got out of this bad situation, and then they tried to get into a good one. If it weren't the Marlins if it were any of the other 29 teams i think the trade in 2012 of after 2012 of burley and reyes and johnson would have been seen as you know this genius sabermetric masterstroke of cutting your losses and getting rid of these huge contracts getting a really stacked farm system out of it the only reason that it was so poorly received is that it was the marlins and it was just another broken promise i think the marlins are going to break every promise they have the stanton contract is 10 potential broken promises in one. I mean, it's, it is an absurd contract in a lot of ways. It's totally backloaded, which implies that Loria probably is going to try everything he can to trade it when he can. It's got this opt-out for Stanton that Loria is apparently telling people he's counting on Stanton taking, in which the Marlins get this huge, huge discount for the first six years. And the idea is that they're going to use that discount that he's giving them to field a competitive team, um, maybe they will. They have enough young pieces. They have, you know, in in times and aggressive ownership that will buy the pieces that he needs to compete. My guess is that the Marlins make a really, really strong run at the next two or three years, and they will uh, tear it down as ugly and crassly as they need to as soon as it becomes Profitable and we will hate them again.
1: They're like they're like the Washington football team of of baseball at this point. Their ownership is reviled. Um, at least they occasionally win. What's going on in Los Angeles? We're just going to go around America and ask Sam Miller <laughs> to tell us why to explain what the hell is going on with some of these franchises. Is
0: that that's as specific as you're
1: getting with Los Angeles with the Dodgers? I mean, you know, new new general manager, um, which has allowed certain columnists to to revive the old tropes of. Uh, of too much pointy-headed, sabermetric behavior, but a lot of movement on the roster. Do you see a logic in terms of what the Dodgers are doing?
0: Yeah. I, well, I think that the as a package, the moves were that sort of 12-hour period where they added five guys was fairly brilliant. There's a, it's going to be a really interesting thing to watch this front office, not because they're not smart. We know they're definitely smart, and we've seen smart teams with money before, and they can do good things. It's just really hard to differentiate yourself at this point, and particularly at the level of money that the Dodgers have. If you go sign, you know, when, when we're talking about a guy like Hanley Ramirez or, you know, a free agent like Max Scherzer or something, there's really no, no useful intelligence on those guys that a smart GM has that a, you know, quote-unquote dumb GM doesn't, or that, you know, a blogger writing his first post doesn't have. 98% of the information that you need to know about Max Scherzer, is there for all of us, and we all agree on it. Where smart teams generally uh, can distinguish themselves is areas where you're making hundreds of small moves, which is like the draft and international signings and player development, maybe even arguably thousands or tens of thousands of of distinct actions, and your uh, ability to have a cohesive plan kind of emerges over time. And so with the Dodgers now, we're Expecting this front office that is made up of people who have never had money and have distinguished themselves in that situation to suddenly make better nine-figure contract offers. And I don't know that they're really going to do that. And so it, the, the question is, how will they distinguish themselves? And I, I think that what we saw on Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, one of those days when they made five moves in 12 hours and there was this kind of balletic synchronicity to all of them, they all fit together, they all depended on each other, they all could have fallen apart and taken all the other ones with them, was an incredibly disciplined and organized way of thinking about roster construction where they were not just doing one step at a time and then surveying and seeing what they needed to do. They really had an efficiency to their movements that was fairly brilliant. That, to me, has nothing to do with sabermetrics, and it has nothing to do with any of the things that we sort of think of as stat-heady front offices. It's just good discipline. It's smart management. And uh, you can sort of see why they trusted those guys beyond their ability to, you know, read a, a heat map.
5: Does Suspeta stink, and I think he's good? Is Rick Porcello good, and I think he stinks?
0: Um, they're both above average, and neither one is a star. Porcello basically has had better peripherals than, than ERA for a long time, and he's been playing. He's a ground ball pitcher in front of, Horrible, horrible infield defenses. And even, not just the infield defense, but Detroit has always been a bad park for ground balls for some reason. Or I guess if you're a ground ball, it's a good park. More ground ball hits there. I am a there. ground ball. Yes. If you're a ground ball. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Porcello has basically always been in kind of a bad environment for him to thrive. He's super, super young, even though you've heard of him forever. And uh, so he's you know he's probably an above-average pitcher. He's a good number three and a bad number two, and Suspetus is not a very good defensive outfielder. Other than his arm, uh, he doesn't do some of the things on base that you would like to see, such as getting on base. That would be the thing about on base that you would want him to do. He doesn't the onness of it. <laughs> he <doesn't have laughs> Once he's on, on the
5: base, base, like his gravity helps him to stay anchored to the base.
0: Actually, he, do, he does the, the sort of the basics of uh, human physicality. <laughs> he just he's not an he's not nearly as exciting a player as you probably remember him being you know he's down to kind of a 15-15 guy instead of a 25-25 guy he's good they're both good they're both good that's why they both got good players back all
4: right right. uh mike is now very well prepared for his fantasy draft uh sam miller (laughs) sam miller you're a good number three a bad number two but a great number one (laughs) we always (laughs) love having having you on thanks for being with us happy to Sam Miller is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and the co-host of the daily podcast, Effectively Wild. In the New York Times last week, Michael Powell wrote a column on the indignities faced by the Buffalo Jills cheerleaders, who were forced to pay $650 for their uniforms, do jumping jacks to see if their flesh jiggled, and allow themselves to be auctioned off to sit on men's laps at a golf tournament. And for all that and more, they were not paid a single penny. Five Bills cheerleaders sued the team in May, claiming the team violated minimum wage laws. The team responded by disbanding the cheerleading squad for the season, claiming that it's not responsible for any of this because the cheerleaders are provided by a third-party contractor, not employed by the team. We are now joined by Sharon Vinnick, an attorney in California who has represented and is currently representing cheerleaders for the Oakland Raiders and the New York Jets in lawsuits against their teams. Uh, Sharon, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So there are some differences uh, between what I just described in the Buffalo case and the ones that you've worked on with the Raiders and the Jets. Can you walk us through uh, the particulars of the cases that you've worked
3: on? Sure. Um, The cases that I've worked on are fair wage, fair pay cases. They're not sexual harassment cases. So in both the Oakland Raiders case and the New York Jets case, the allegations that were made have to do strictly with the women not getting paid wages for each of the hours that they worked, and not getting paid their expenses.
4: So the Raiders case uh, settled, it was for $1.25 million, right?
3: The court has preliminarily approved that settlement. The final approval will be in February of 2015.
4: And the Jets case is ongoing.
3: That's correct.
4: So... There have been or are currently five of these cases. There's uh, Oakland, Buffalo, the Jets, Cincinnati, and Tampa. Um, have you know Being familiar with, with all of these, can you kind of characterize the treatment that cheerleaders get and what is being alleged here?
3: Well, the common factor for all five of these lawsuits is that the women are alleging that they're not getting paid for all of the work that they do. In California and all of the other states, there are laws that require that people get paid for each and every hour that they work. And the common thread in all of these suits is that the women aren't getting paid. Some of the women aren't getting paid at all, like in the Buffalo Jills case. And some of the women are getting paid for some of their work, but not all of their work, like in the Oakland case and the New York Jets case.
1: What's your sense of why the NFL And its teams would allow this to happen for so many years, to allow employees who are visible on the field, prominent in the community, in the public relations departments of these teams. Why try to get away with this for so many years to save a few thousand dollars?
3: I think it's a combination of factors. I think that some of it is just a historical anomaly. These um, cheerleaders, in a lot of cases, started before we had wage and hour laws that required that people be paid for all of the hours that they work. But I think that the failure to address the problem over time is just indicative of gender discrimination and that the NFL is really not minding the store and making sure that women who are an integral part of the game day experience are adequately paid for their time.
5: Well, I'm not saying that's not true, but the dude who fires the t-shirt cannon I'm sure they were stiffing also, because why would they pay people if they don't have to? Well, because of the law. My point of view is this is pretty simple. Everyone should get paid minimum wage. Have these suits been settled so that no court can actually point to a rule that says cheerleaders must be paid minimum wage? Is it still up in the air? Might the owner's arguments that they really are private contractors, might that hold water in some or all jurisdictions?
3: Well, you're, you're mixing a whole bunch of different issues at the same time. So first of all, it's not clear to me that the guy who fires the t-shirt cannon isn't paid. Um, so far, he hasn't brought a lawsuit, so as far as I know, he is paid. In terms of whether these women are independent contractors, that varies from team to team. On the Oakland Raiders case, the women work directly for the team. There's no independent contractor issue. Even if you're an independent contractor, you're still entitled to be paid for all of your work. Then I guess the last question you asked is whether I thought these cases had been settled to avoid a ruling. Only one of the five cases has been settled. No,
5: I didn't ask that. I didn't ask that. What I asked was, is there now a new rule that teams can't do that or have cases? I'm not asking about why they were settled. I'm asking what the legal status was. Can we now definitively say teams can't do this? There's court precedent that says cheerleaders must be paid as employees.
3: There is no final precedent on any of this. I think that the law is crystal clear myself, but you are correct that there has not been a court ruling about this.
4: So an Eagles cheerleader was interviewed in GQ and I feel like represented a certain viewpoint that um, some of these women have, you know, saying the work that we do, our pay goes along very well. There's so many amazing opportunities with this job and it's a job, but it's fun. It's kind of priceless thinking about pay. That's an added bonus, really. So there are a lot of women who want to do this job, a lot of women who are willing to do it for no pay or low pay. So how do you think that affects what NFL teams and what these cheerleading squads are able to do? And the concept of fairness here, if so many women are lining up to do the work?
3: There are guys who are probably lining up to be quarterback, and we still pay them handsomely for the work. The fact that a job is appealing, that somebody wants to do it doesn't mean that they're not entitled to be paid for all of the work that they do. And I think the fact that there are women who are enthusiastic about doing this has merely allowed the NFL to take advantage of that enthusiasm. I mean, you probably like your job, but I bet you want to get a paycheck at the end of the day.
5: Actually, I do a lot of things in my job where I don't get a paycheck for. I mean, I think it's really reprehensible that they're not paying their people minimum wage. They're such profitable companies, they make so much money. Just pay your people minimum wage. Furthermore, I think it's inherently sexist. I don't think that's true of high school or college cheerleaders, but I can't believe how NFL cheerleaders are used in this day and age. They're just used for men to ogle. That said, there are plenty of jobs, and this is why I asked about precedent, there are plenty of jobs where you are a private contractor. I've done stand-up comedy. Those guys aren't paid minimum wage. The idea is will pay you whatever it is, 11 bucks a set, and it really is used to burn. Your credentials. I go on MSNBC or CNN and I'm not paid. I'd like to be. I guess maybe I could sue. But the idea is you burnish your credentials. It's you know useful in other ways. So I think that people should be decent. Corporations should be decent to their employees. Maybe it is the law that corporations need to pay their employees. But I do think that there is something to the argument that cheerleaders are a lot different from uni- unionized employees like the players themselves.
3: Well, the cheerleaders have at times been unionized. The Buffalo Jills were unionized during the 60s and 70s. And I think that the point that you're making allows for an interesting discussion, but the bottom line is, as you say, they need to be paid at least minimum wage. I mean, we can argue about whether they should be paid minimum wage or whether they should be paid something enhanced because they add to the game day experience. But to simply take advantage of these women is reprehensible, as you say.
1: The women have been in some ways complicit in allowing this culture to evolve, though. And and that's part of the problem is that this is this act of it's perceived as, as a job that is filled with these perks and these opportunities, when in fact it might not be. Um, and as you say, whether it's fun or not is is irrelevant. How, in, in your conversations with women that have worked as cheerleaders, how do you sense the evolution of this culture with these bizarre rules on what they're permitted to wear, even when they're not performing, on hygiene, on makeup, on attendance and other performance requirements? Why do you think this culture has evolved?
3: I think a lot of it is just women's ignorance of their rights. I know that in our case, when our first client came to us, Lacey T., she had no idea that the contract that the Raiders gave her was illegal and felt that, you know, a large NFL team, they would obviously be following the law. And when you're talking about women who, in general, not all, but mostly, are young, they're not very sophisticated, they're certainly not knowledgeable about the law, and they feel like they're dealing with very large, reputable corporations that are going to be following the law. So it doesn't occur to them initially that what's going on is illegal in any way, shape, or form.
4: And with the Radorette's case, and this is common among all the ones that I've read about, there was a rule, for example, about getting a specific hairstyle from a particular hairstylist, and you weren't reimbursed for that. There's this kind of element... Buying your own uniforms. There's this element of control here that goes beyond the specific wage complaint they were talking about here. And, you know, Stefan mentioned like the hygiene stuff, just like really gross requirements of like, you know, the women, you know, can't wear panties, have to wear a certain kind of pantyhose. And it is just this kind of like bizarre element of control of women that you're not either not paying or not paying minimum wage. And it just looks really, really bad for the league and for the teams. I'm not sure I have a question here, um, but that's the part that kind of offends me the most.
3: Well, I think it's interesting that that's what offends you the most, because I think that's certainly the most salacious. And it offends me, but it equally offends me that the women just aren't being paid for their work.
4: Yeah, you might have a point there. I mean, (laughs) tomato, tomato, I think it's it's all offensive. Yeah. Um, Sharon, what is the um, kind of timetable on what you're looking at with the Jets?
3: Um, The Jets case seems to be moving a little more slowly than the Raiders case. I anticipate that we'll have some definitive um, movement in that case sometime in the winter or spring of 2015.
4: And with the Raiders one, um, there was a woman who opted out of the settlement saying that the amount wasn't large enough and that it should have Ben Moore, can you um, tell us about that?
3: Sure. In the Raiders case, we have three women who have taken an adverse position. One has opted out, and two have objected, all for essentially the same reason. That's not unusual in class action cases when there's a separate lawsuit that's been filed, which is the case in the Raiders um, litigation. It's not unusual that there's a challenge, and the system is set up such that the judge should be able to hear what people think about the settlement and then he'll make a decision about whether the settlement is fair or whether we should go back to the drawing board. I feel confident that the judge is going to determine that the settlement is extremely fair, but I guess we'll find out in February.
5: So a couple times you've said that it's illegal, but because there have been settlements and no rulings, no one is, as we've established in this conversation, that's not been definitively said. Do you want that? Do you want to take this so far that someone actually literally declares these actions illegal, or do you just have to represent your clients, and if your clients want to settle, you have to settle?
3: well i think it's definitively illegal because if you look at the case law it's very clear that there's really no legitimate argument on the other side in terms of you know what i'd like to see i feel very pleased that we're having this discussion at all and i think that that in and of itself is a win and you know these women they want to continue cheering and they want to move on with their lives so to the extent that settlement makes sense. I favor that, too.
1: Do you get any sense that cheerleaders from uh, multiple NFL teams are trying to get together and you know, band together to either collectively bargain or, or find a way to pressure the league as a whole to, to write this, uh, this pay problem?
3: Th- that's a very interesting question. I have been asked about that a lot. I haven't seen any evidence of it. I think there are a couple of reasons. One is just logistical reasons, since the women don't use their last name that's league policy. It's very hard for them to connect with each other. Secondly, I think that the laws are different in each state. So they don't have a, a sense that a national league-wide um, union would be the way to go.
4: All right, Sharon, thank you so much for walking us through this, and we'll perhaps check back in and see uh, how it's going in a in a year or two.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for looking into the story.
4: All right, it is now time for Afterballs. We just uh, talked about cheerleading cheerleaders and these nfl teams have names for their squads we talked about the buffalo jills there's the raider looking on the wikipedia list of nfl cheerleading squad names there's the the dolphin dolls became the dolphin star brights <laughs> wow. starlight star bright um the vi queens i like that <laughs> mm. Too
5: bad it's uh, female cheerleaders. Wouldn't that be great? The first cross-gender cheer squad.
4: The Eagleettes, the the Liberty Bells. Clever. Oh, wait, I found it. 1995 to present, the Rams cheerleaders are just known as the St. Louis Rams cheerleaders. But from 1974 to 1994, they were the Embraceable Yous.
5: Oh, that's great.
1: That is good. Except for the allusion to the fact that you can embrace them, which you're clearly (laughs) not allowed to do, Do especially if
5: you're a fan. Author's warning, please do not embrace the embraceable (laughs) use. Embraceable (laughs) use, not for embracing. Also, when sometimes they cheer, they wave their pom-poms high above their head. Conservative members of the local law enforcement community decry that as supporting the hands-up movement.
4: Um, Mike, what is your embraceable you? So... This week on, uh,
5: The Gist, which is a podcast by Mike Pesca. It's podcast week. It's uh, coinciding with the big slate. podcast anniversary. It's anniversary of the word podcast. So slate is doing a blowout section and I'm interviewing all different podcasters. I think we're calling the week Mike's favorite podcast and their long interviews. So the interview that I'm going to play, I'm going to tease an interview. That's not part of podcast week, but it will play next week. And it has a hang up and listen bent. In fact, it has a hang up and listen reference. I was speaking with Al Michaels, who has just written a book called you can't make this up miracles, memories, and the perfect marriage of sports and television. And he was speaking about well, you'll see. He was speaking about uh, how he came up in Hawaii, and then I referenced Josh's big pet peeve, and I couldn't believe that the example I just plucked from the air was an actual real life example that Ma- Al Michaels took head on. Here is a short excerpt of this forthcoming interview. And did you extend that courtesy to the family of Bears kicker Robbie Gold, who spells his last name G O U L D?
4: The first time we had him, I went down on the field, and I, I had he he. he, he been in a couple of games prior to that and i noticed that the announcers had called him gold so i said just want to make sure so uh you know so i I went to him before the game and 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 that's the way it's pronounced you know sometimes guys will change their names you know along the way i had tony dorsett in college when he was dorset yeah and then he
3: became dorsett and then joe theisman was originally theisman
4: thank you al michaels and Stefan fatsis what is your embraceable you Well, gordy how i embraceable you What is your impression? Mm -hmm,
1: Gordie Howe, hockey legend, is not doing well. He's 86 years old. He's had dementia for several years, and he has suffered two strokes in as many months. You might not know much about Gordie Howe. Maybe you do know that he was the game's most prolific scorer until Wayne Gretzky, 801 goals in the NHL, almost all for the Detroit Red Wings, 174 in the World Hockey Association in the 1970s. Maybe you know that he played a long time. His career started in the NHL in 1946 at age 18. Kobe-like. And ended in the NHL in 1980 at age 52 – Or maybe you know about the Gordie Howe hat trick, a goal, an assist, and a fight in the same game. Howe has a memoir just out, Mr. Hockey, my story, and as I was reading about Howe's health, I wondered how someone who has severe dementia, his family has said that the big decline began more than two years ago, how someone that ill can write a memoir, or at least has cogent enough thoughts and memories that he can describe them to whoever wrote the book, in this case a Canadian journalist who's only credited in the acknowledgments. In his review of Mr. Hockey last week, John Branch of the New York Times, the author of Boy on Ice about the death and life of enforcer Derek Bogard, wondered the same thing and also how much damage hockey might have done to Gordie Howe's brain. Howe's memoir is described by Branch and others as homespun, self-deprecating, and short on introspection. That's certainly in keeping with the code in Howe's helmetless career. Branch begins his review by noting that Gordie Howe had three teeth knocked out in his first game, suffered at least 14 broken noses, and took more than 300 stitches to his face. There's also the time he skated headfirst into the boards and doctors had to drill a hole in his skull to relieve pressure and keep him from dying. So I'm willing here to nod to the bygone days when hockey fights were cause for celebration of athletic toughness and recount one from Howe's career that still generates the occasional thread on hockey fights or dropyourgloves.com and no doubt will be recounted in some of Howe's obituaries. February 1st, 1959, Madison Square Garden, Howe cuts a young Ranger, Eddie Shack, with his stick. The Rangers had an enforcer, Lou Fontenato, who was huge for the time, 6'1", 195 pounds. He was the first player in NHL history to spend more than 200 minutes in the penalty box in a season. Fontenato had been assigned to harass Howe before he once hit him over the head with his stick. Another time he hit him in the mouth with the butt end of his stick. Howe retaliated for that one. He was quoted as saying in a blog post last month on DetroitAthletic.com, when he went to hit me, I raised my stick and cross-checked him and damn near cut his ear off, tit for tat. Anyway, after Howe cuts Shaq at the garden, Fontanato tells Howe to cool it. Then he rushes from the blue line, hits Howe into the boards behind the Red Wings net, and starts punching. Howe grabs Fontanato's jersey. That honker of his was right there, and I drilled it, Howe recalled of Fontanato's nose. A string of uppercuts followed. Wop, 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 just like someone chopping wood, one player said. The Red Wings lefty Wilson said, with every blow you could hear something break, squish, squish. His jaw was broken, too. Hockey Digest reported that Fontenato's nose, quote, looked like a rudder swung hard to starboard. Our friend Stan Fischler has written that house punches were, quote, like locomotive pistons and the once fearsome Ranger had been mashed almost beyond recognition. Fontenato finished the game and then had surgery to reconstruct his face. Life magazine ran a three-page spread on the fight, including gruesome photos of Fontanato on the ice and in the hospital in what looked to be a nice plaid robe or smoking jacket, couldn't be sure. In his new autobiography, Howe recalls, it didn't make me happy to see Louis in such bad shape, but I can't say I felt sorry for him. He then says that his wife, Colleen, convinced him to invite Fontanato to a charity event. Fontanato accepted, and the two became lifelong friends. Hockey!
5: The one thing that I might correct is that I don't think Stan Fischler would
1: say that we're friends of his. I think you would. I think Stan, you think you would? I all think right. Stan loved being on our show. You think he was gruff but lovable? I think Stan is gruff but lovable. Okay. The gruff but lovable Stan
4: Fischler. Josh, what's your embraceable you? I think we could all agree he just didn't like Josh. <laughs> that, that we can definitely agree on. Stan is my embraceable you. <laughs> so I have a resurrected Sam Miller of baseball prospectus because I need some audience participation from baseball-knowledgeable individuals for this after ball. Hello, and Sam. He's saying that Mike and I aren't baseball-knowledgeable? Sam is just on another level. So the crowd participation element will become clear in a minute. Everyone sit tight. Um, so my friend Dan Ingber, who is a writer for Slate, sent me a story a few days ago that I needed to share with you guys, all of you out there in America. It is by Tyler Kepner. He is the national baseball writer for The New York Times. The the man knows his stuff. He's been on the baseball beat for a long time. He's smart. He's well-sourced. He also loves a fanciful lead. Mm -hmm. And the one he wrote on the winter meetings is so fanciful as to almost defy belief. So instead of just presenting it to you in all its glory, I'm going to do this as a quiz. I've written two leads myself in the style of the Kepner lead. I will read all three, my Kepner homages and the real Kepner story. And I want you, Sam... Mike and Stefan to guess which ones are real and which ones are faux, although you should hold your guesses to the end. And hopefully you have not read the real Tyler Kepner lead. I like, have,
5: wait, actually. Like, I know wait, exactly wait, don't the tell the me. one you're talking
0: about. It's awesome.
4: Uh, Sam, have you read? Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: I don't. I, I started to Google it, and then I figured yeah, out where you were stop Googling. So stop Googling.
4: All right. So Sam and Stefan, you can guess along. Mike, you can just giggle mm-hmm. in the background. All right. I'll write a fake lead, too. All right, good. You write a fake lead while I'm reading my fake leads right. and the real lead. And hang up listeners, you can play along as well. Feel free to shout out your guest to your dog or whoever you're with. All right. Lead number one, a story on the baseball winter meetings, possibly written by Josh Levine, possibly Tyler Kepner. Mick Jagger once declared that you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find that you get what you need. He was not, of course, talking about David Need the first player taken by the Colorado Rockies in the 1992 expansion draft. But expansion and contraction were the dominant themes at San Diego's Manchester Grand Hyatt this week. Which teams got what they wanted? Who'll get what they need? The answers to those questions are as of yet unclear, though team executives did scurry through the lobby like so many rolling stones, with one of them, Cleveland Indians general manager Chris Antonetti gathering Brandon Moss in a trade with the Oakland A's. All right. That is, <laughs> that, is that is lead number one. Second. All right. Lead number two. Lead number two. Is this the real Tyler Kapner story on the winter meetings? <laughs> David Gilmore once noted that when it comes to money, you should grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. <laughs> Clearly, he was not alluding to Norm Cash, who had 361 in 1961 for the Detroit Tigers. No, the Pink Floyd singer was talking about cash of the cold and hard variety bushels of which will be flying around at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego starting this Monday. Gotta work the hotel in there. (laughs) The hotel should be providing us uh, considerations this week. Uh, Floyd Bannister, the White Sox starter who made just more than $7 million total during his 15-year career, would surely marvel at the size of the contracts being handed out in 2014. Pitchers, outfielders, third basemen, they're all getting good jobs with more pay, and they're Okay. All right, that's lead number two. Lead number three is this Tyler kept on the Winter Meetings. John Lennon once pondered, paradoxically, how many holes it took to fill the Albert Hall. Quite obviously, he was not referring to Albert Hall, who would play for the Atlanta Braves in the 1980s. But the idea of filling holes in a big building is in play starting on Monday. How many holes does it take to fill the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego? Right. The question does not make perfect sense, <laughs> but neither does the widespread perception of the baseball winter meetings. All right, Sam, why don't you go first? Which, which do you think is real?
0: I'm going, uh, I, you know what, I'm going with the first one based strictly on the uh, beat writer rock band hot list. I'm, I, if it were Springsteen, you'd have fooled me, but I'm going with like the, the most popular band among beat writers. I'm going with the Stones. I'm going with the first.
1: I'm going to disagree with you, Sam Miller, and go with John Lennon. He was in the news because it was the anniversary of his, of his murder. Topical. And it was a little more understated than Josh's Rolling Stone lead.
4: All right, Mike, do you want to reveal what the correct answer is? First, I want to say this.
5: Operation is, of course, a wacky doctor's game by Milton Bradley. But the operation undertaken by Ben Charrington will no doubt eschew Milton Bradley, the talented but troubled outfielder who last played for Seattle in 2011 and has had a few knee knee operations. And while John Candy was once part owner of the Toronto Argonauts, the, the Toronto Blue Jays hope to make their great white north a candy land with the signing of Josh Donaldson. All right. No, sorry. That's not a topper. I will reveal, it's the Albert Hall one. Ah.
4: Yes! <laughs> what a weird-ass lead. I like it. Albert Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I think Stefan was exactly right, that I couldn't resist putting in a few more jokes yeah. than, were, than were absolutely necessary. But well, if you were well, to go
1: that far, you should have gone Dave Cash in addition to Norm Cash. I
4: should have. You should have gotten them both in there.
0: Uh, you're assuming that Tyler Kepner could also not resist putting in a few more jokes than were necessary, though.
1: That's they, true. They do have editors at the New York Times. It's and, true. And,
5: and no reference to Daryl Strawberry Fields forever? Come on.
0: <laughs> you know, Albert Hall was a, uh, unless I wasn't listening closely enough, I don't think it was mentioned, but Albert Hall was a Rule 5 draft pick during the 1989 winter meetings. Did he say that?
4: He did not he say did that, not, but he so, should have, damn it.
0: Yeah, Rule 5 being the uh, probably most overhyped part of the winter meetings.
4: All right, we'd love your feedback from what we talked about today. You can email us at at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Don't forget to call us for our call-in show. 7 hang up 10 is the number. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Folo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
3: Judy was
1: boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
2: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
2: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa,
3: take it easy, Judy. (laughs)